Have you been zombified by monsters? Welcome to the Zombified Podcast, your source for fresh brains. Zombified is a production of ASU and the Zombie Apocalypse Medicine Alliance. I'm your host, Athena Actipus, psychology professor at ASU and chair of the Zombie Apocalypse Medicine Alliance. And I am your co-host, Dave Lundberg-Kenrick. I'm the Media Outreach Program Manager at ASU, and I am doomed if there's an apocalypse. Are you? Uh, it's That's what uh, I took away from... <laughs> <laughs> from this episode? From this episode, yeah. Yeah, so, so what are your vulnerabilities in the apocalypse? Um, I mean, what are my strengths? Let's see. Uh, well, I, I don't have a bag in my car i don't either yeah um and i don't really know how to defend myself okay uh, and uh I, I don't keep an axe in my car which is <laughs> one of the things that we're supposed to do right? yeah so, so our our guest emily zarka she knows a lot about monsters, both from an academic perspective and from like the kind of reality of well, what would happen in a in a situation where she's sort prepared. of apocalyptic. Like, she yeah, seems really prepared. Yeah, so, I really um, want her on my Z team. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you should ask if she'll just sort of ride with you everywhere you go, carrying an axe. Just in case, <laughs> That's right. Just That's in case right. Something goes awry. So, but. You know, if people listen today, then they can be more prepared than us. That's so, right. Uh, yeah. Or maybe we can actually get our acts together and put together such a bag. I mean, we should. We're hosting this podcast about zombies and we talk about the apocalypse. So I feel like we should be better that's prepared. True. And, and actually, I have I started putting together a big bin that it's like also partly like camping gear and stuff. But uh so, but it's sitting in my house right now. So I need to, it's giant though. That's the thing is it's like, it would take up the entire. Yeah. You're not carrying that on your back. Oh no. Even, even in my car. It's yeah. like, you know, so, yeah. uh, but we'll see. Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> hopefully, hopefully the apocalypse doesn't come before you get your bag. Yeah, so. before I get it, before yeah. I get it to the size where it can sit, it can fit in the car. That's right. right That's now right. It takes up like the whole trunk. Yeah. So, um. Yeah. Well, so we talked to Emily about what you should have in your apocalypse ready bag. We talked to her about monsters and how monsters seem to really reflect what's going on in society. And we just have a fun time with her because she's a super engaging guest and she knows a lot about. Monsters. Yeah, yeah. It's really a very cheery discussion of how we're all doomed. So, yeah, um, although, but there is this other side, which is, you know, by engaging with horror, we can potentially put ourselves in a mind frame where we will be more ready for the apocalypse. That's true. And that's the yeah. whole, one so, of the whole points. So that's so. why it's a, it's really an episode of optimism. That's true. So. <laughs> all right, let's all hear right, it. here we go. I know it's crazy, but it seems so logical try to fight it but it's something psychological with you makes me act the way i do i'm not trying to be over analytical retracing time to remind myself how ugly this could be but something else is taking over me Welcome, Emily. It is awesome to have you here. And uh, you guys met just briefly, just yes. now. Yep. Just now. Yes. yes. Excellent. So. Excellent. Wow. So, um, Emily, would you introduce yourself for us sure. in your own words? Of and course. that way also Dave can get to know you a little better? Yes. Okay. Um, so I'm Dr. Emily Zarka. I have a PhD in literature with a specialty in the Gothic. Wrote my dissertation about the undead. And now I'm officially a monster expert here at Arizona State University and also with PBS Digital Studios. Awesome. So if you were going to say you're a doctor of mm -hmm. something, what would you... Doctor what? of Monsters. Doctor of uh, Monsters? Uh, I love that. Cool. I love so. that. Okay. So how did you get into studying or becoming a Doctor of Monsters? Mm -hmm. Well, it actually started um, a long time ago when I was a kid. Some of my earliest memories are watching the terrible B sci-fi movies and horror movies with my mom. And that evolved into a true 
love for horror, everything from, you know, goosebumps, scary stories to tell in the dark to reading Stephen King way before I probably should have been. And then I had this epiphany moment in undergrad where I realized I could do two things I love, talk about monsters and read books. And that turned into coming to the PhD program in literature, British Romantic period, which I do believe is where we get a lot of the undead tropes that we see today. So that turned into me deciding why not just go full out with this, call myself a monster expert and start trying to actually get the credentials for that. And luckily I did. Sweet. Okay. So I already have a question for you, which is what do you mean by like loving horror? Yes. Because like, Mm -hmm. I know, like I can find it like fascinating Mm -hmm. and like compelling Mm -hmm. and kind of fun, especially if there's some humor in it. Mm -hmm. But like for me, I think for a lot of people, like Mm -hmm. horror is just like scary, like Scary so, or gross. Yeah. Yeah, I so, get a lot. yeah. So for you, like what mm-hmm. is like loving horror? What does that mean? What what are the mm-hmm. what are the feelings that you have when you're watching scary Ooh, gross? It depends zombie. on how scary it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, and I think actually I can look back to British romanticism to kind of help me out with this one is the concept of the sublime, right? The Burkean sublime. So for me, horror, I love it and it's so impactful because it's a way for us to think about scary situations and really complex topics without actually having to be in danger ourselves. So I think it's cathartic, not only the actual um, anatomical response we have, right, with adrenaline, heart rate, all those things that can occur when you're watching or reading something scary. But for me, it's being able to even plan out what you would do, right? In some ways, I think horror sort of indoctrinates us into thinking about horrible situations and how we would react. But for me, horror has always been sort of, you know, the outsider genre. I've always identified with being sort of the weirdo and the nerd. So I think uh-huh. horror has an attraction for me there. But I think it's really experimental. I think that horror is a genre where authors and creators and artists of all kinds get to play with ideas that maybe, you know, aren't considered okay for traditional genres, like maybe even romance. And luckily, horror movies, at least, have been getting a lot more um, respect, I think, in recognition in the last few years. And I hope to see more of that. But I also hope horror stays weird. I think that's one of the things I love about it. Is <laughs> yeah. that it's, you know, creepy and strange and monster creation is something I really like. I think creativity comes into play. And what my research does is looks at how certain monsters and why certain monsters evolve at different times in different places in the world. That's so interesting. Awesome. So. Yeah. Okay. So you said something mm-hmm. really, really cool a couple minutes ago about how experiencing horror like you know watching a movie or reading a book that's about like crazy Mm -hmm. like insane like apocalyptic (laughs) catastrophic situations that that is almost like potentially a way to put yourself in that Mm -hmm. situation and almost like prepare for things that you can't possibly prepare for so is is that like I think so I think psychologically and practically so psychologically yeah I mean it's one thing to read about you know people getting shot in the head and all these like horrible things happening in horror movies like zombie films and um, even zombie books in particular but I mean it's practical too like I read Cormac McCarthy's The Road and started carrying around workman's gloves in the back of like my go pack right my zombie apocalypse kit yeah what else is in your oh my gosh so many things (laughs) I feel like you have to have I always say knives like certain kinds of knives you can also use as like axe kind of situations um I have two first aid kits I have waterproof matches um emergency blankets the silver reflective ones and then some uh, hand crank radio um what else do I have no money because I don't think money's going to be useless we don't need that but I also have um, duct tape, duct tape, workman's gloves, and actually little bottles of alcohol um, for two purposes. One, <laughs> actually three, right? Three. <laughs> Things really go to pot. I'm going to be drinking them. Um, second one is bartering, right? It's going to be, again, money's going to be useless. Uh-huh. People always want booze. And the third to sanitize um, wounds, right? Sterilization. You could also use it for drinking water, yes. right? Like yeah. if you have yeah. like a cup of water mm-hmm. and you're like, yeah. I don't know. Put a few yep. drops of alcohol. I did get in there, a life right? straw, so I have a life straw. Oh, okay. In there. So you're yeah. covered. So you oh, can I'm use your alcohol for more important exactly. things. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. You, do you, you keep this in your car. I literally you? keep it in my car. Um, it's in my car at all times. And I think again, it seems kind of like a crazy thing, like oh, zombie apocalypse. But again, it's just the way that horror allows us to prepare for situations that are terrible, like a bioweapons attack, or if there was some other kind of disaster, natural or man-made. I at least know that I can 
get myself to my family or to where I need to be that I can survive for a certain period of time. And I also have, now that I think about it, socks and old tennis shoes because as someone who wears, you know, heels or yes. heeled boots, I've got to be able to run. Yeah. But I've heard that from people who live in places like in San Francisco, right? For an earthquake, same thing. You want to have sneakers. Yeah. Um, even here in Arizona, if I, my car were to break down on the side of the road, I also have three gallons of drinking water. Like I could survive overnight in the desert if I had to. Right. So have you ever had to use those workman's gloves that you put in your I have pack? not. Um, luckily, I have used the duct tape for various things. I mean, it's kind of nice. It's like, oh, no, I have like a band. I need a Band-Aid. Don't worry, I have it in my first aid kit. As long yeah. as you're restocking. Yeah, wardrobe yeah. repair. I mean, yeah. really duct tape works yeah. for everything. A pair of old glasses because I do wear contacts and glasses. So you got to have something. Yes. Yeah. 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 Do you have a, a go kit? Yeah, uh, bug out bag. Uh. Uh, I have a first aid kit mm -hmm. that I keep in the car. And then I do tend to try to keep sneakers, but mm -hmm. that's more day to day. Mm -hmm. But I think, uh, I think I'm doomed. Yeah, uh, I don't I have some kind of weapon. Even if it's a Swiss army knife, you have to have something. I used yeah. to have a little hatchet like, okay. when I would go See? camping. And so, Your head's uh, in the right but, place. But now... <laughs> I don't know. The car itself will have to be my weapon. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. I don't uh, have one, but I, I feel like I really should. And I've been thinking about it for a long time, but maybe I'm sort of paralyzed by like having to have it mm -hmm. perfect. But of course you can't you have can't, a perfect no. go bag. Right. Practically, yeah. yeah. I mean, my whole car would ideally would be my go bag, put everything in there, but, but your then car's you'd be gonna a hoarder. Down. So you're going to be also, you don't want to have too much because then you're going to be a target for other survivors. Mm hmm them to steal from you or kill you and steal from you yeah well and then the, we're in a whole other realm of the zombie apocalypse which is like the social side of it like how would you actually yes. establish like co-op shared cooperative mm -hmm. intentions and like not get exploited and all of that and horror and monsters i think bring out those negative human emotions again in a way that we can think about them and maybe figure out how to deal with them without literally having like a knife to our throat we get to experience it in the fictional realm, and then maybe it can help us in the yeah. future. And I mean, you do see like in times of disaster, people are actually really cooperative. Yep. So I don't think that necessarily we're socially doomed. In Have a you seen the movie Contagion? I haven't. I you should. should. I, so this is so the thing. Your like, theory, yeah. I am so bad at like <laughs> being on top of like all these movies that I should be watching it's not zombie based don't worry i know yeah, but it's yeah. still it's about disease, you know disease yeah. and mm -hmm. contagion right that was, yeah so i i do need to start working my way through like a watch list i can yeah. give you some recommendations Sweet. like if you like top 10 yes. you need to watch yes. in fact we'll we'll put them in the show notes oh that'd be great yeah yeah so yeah, so yeah actually yeah. off the top of your head mm -hmm. which ones do you think are best in terms of preparing people for for preparing people yes. i think in terms of the negative reality of what could happen contagion actually is a really good example um because it shows even when you do have the government trying to give supplies what it actually looks like when you have a couple hundred people trying to get water off of a truck which okay. we see of course in some natural disaster situations and there's one horrifying scene in there which doesn't really spoil too much that things are not going great and you see someone going into the homes and killing people in their homes so they can take their supplies after and then just leaving not even wanting the home themselves uh -huh. so i think even coming to the reality that your resources are going to be valuable not just to you but to other people to think about that um preparation which is one of my favorite mo zombie movies in general um 28 days later I think is also really good to show how you can like make a barricade in an apartment building. So maybe the zombies, you at least hear them coming. I think those are good too. Yeah. One thing that I've come to, cause I've been thinking a lot about this issue of like in the zombie apocalypse or any kind of apocalypse, like does, do your resources become a vulnerability as opposed to like something you can barter with, but it's like, yeah. well, if people can just take your stuff, then it actually makes you more vulnerable. And so what I have decided is that the only thing that will really keep you safe is your brains, mm -hmm. like having skills and abilities mm -hmm. that are not possible to take from yep. you. Yep. So your brains will save you. Yes. And the zombie. And also apocalypse. maybe doom you if they're trying to eat your brains. That's right. right. It's, it's a double edged sword. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. No, but I like that though. And I think yeah. again, that's a really cool thing that I've been trying to take. I haven't done it yet, but I've taken an urban survival class. I want to take an emergency first aid course. Again, because these are just life skills that I think can help you. Even hopefully nothing bad will happen. But if it does, you already have the training. You're already good to go. And yeah. also being able to do something like make bread from scratch or to make beer or to make some kind of food or other resource. Um, electricians, I've also heard, are going to be 
a good thing to have just base knowledge, I guess, of life skills. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. that's interesting. That sort of goes back to the brain thing that there's very practical sort of things Mm -hmm. that we could be learning. So, yeah. And I think like there's actually in general, a huge amount of disempowerment that we all have about like what we can do or Mm -hmm. are like allowed to do. Like, can you, you know, replace your own shower heads or do you have to call someone to do that? I absolutely you know? cannot. Yeah. So uh, I need to be better. <laughs> I, a couple of weeks ago, decided, you know what? I'm going to try to make yogurt. So I tried to make it and it was so fucking easy that I'm embarrassed for myself and all of humanity that we go to the store and buy yogurt because it's... Don't you just like strain it with like... You don't even have to strain it. You just like warm up some milk. And if you have, you know, some like yogurt that has live cultures, after it like cools down a little bit, you mix the culture in and then you just keep it warm for like eight hours and then you have yogurt. Perfect. See, now I'm going to add that to my like zombie survival things in the back of my head. So yeah. here's a question then yeah. based on this yogurt. I idea. guess I shouldn't have told you because now you don't really have an incentive to keep me alive. Zombie <laughs> don't worry. I know you know zombie stuff. So where would we get resources though, right? Because to make mm-hmm. yogurt, I mean, I could make a gallon's worth of yogurt. And then I think then I have to head to the supermarket where I'm assuming there's... going to be a target. You don't want to go to the supermarket. Yeah. So how do you get... How do you get food and stuff? I have I have a basil plant and okay. a fridge full of berries. So I think I'm good for like but two one, days. But maybe? once the power's out too, mm-hmm. don't open the fridge. Don't open the fridge. Unless, mm-hmm. and if you do, like Unless take a bunch of stuff everything. out. Yeah. yeah, you can only open it basically once if yeah. the power's out. Yeah. yeah. Okay. The first thing, honestly, I would do <laughs> if anything was happening... And I've heard this in survival classes I've taken. Do Unless you can leave before everyone else, do not leave. Stay in your home and board up for like the first week because it's going to be chaos. Okay. So you want to be trying to avoid as much chaos as possible. So the first thing, honestly, though, I would do is drinking water is going to be so key. And I know here in Arizona, right, we have the pools. But unless you have a ceramic filter in addition to iodine pills, you can't drink the chlorinated water, really. Oh. So fill up your bathtub. I would fill up bathtubs, buckets, anything you can to just hold the water to at least get you through that first week. That's assuming that we have water coming out of the That is very valid. So that's why you have water supplies in your house. So I have water and I have probably canned food. um, And I do actually have some of those emergency meals that I keep in the back of my car. That's also my uh, zombie apocalypse kit. They taste like shortbread, they're delicious, but there's super high fat, um, super high carb to get you through a couple days. Awesome. How big is your car zombie survival kit? It's a backpack. Okay. Yeah, it's Sorry. a little heavy, but it's a backpack. Um, if I really, I have an additional first aid kit that I would try to probably carry, but no, everything needs to be able to fit in like a bag and your two hands. Cool. Yeah, that makes sense. It's like, it kind of reminds me of like my survival strategy when I'm traveling, which is yeah. never have a suitcase that you can't, or like any, like what you're traveling with, you have to be able to carry it with your se- by yourself yes. and with the shoes that you're currently yes. wearing. Yes, lift right? it above your head. Yeah, yeah, but it, I mean, there's not going to, you can't really rely on like your rollerboard in the mm-hmm. zombie apocalypse too, right? Because you, you're not going to be like going through. Yeah, I think about human cooperation. Do you want to be with the person who's lugging around two giant suitcases or the person with a backpack? You want yeah. the backpack for mobility. Yeah. But, but you were just saying that we probably want to stay Oh, uh, yeah. Inside, That's right? my personal so, thing. I would stay inside for the first week. I would literally board up, pretend that no one's there, defend your home if you need to, because ideally you have resources in your home. So, like, my bug out bag in my car is primarily to get me to my house okay. where all my other supplies are. And that's where, if I could, which yeah. would be hard because it would be probably a full day or two's walk to get to my house from ASU right now. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So I feel like there's an awesome like line that we're kind of going on now, which is like that we, in a way, have been disempowered about doing all sorts of things that we like can do for ourselves that would actually be useful skills to have when and if the shit hits the fan. Mm -hmm. Um, But like, have we kind of been zombified by all of what we are in now Mm -hmm. to like lose some feelings of agency and intentionality about taking care of ourselves? I think so. And I think I've read a lot of scholarship too and talked about it. The idea that especially phones, right? That the fact that you have a smartphone with internet, I do it all the time. It's like, oh, well, I don't know how to do X. Let me just look it up on YouTube. Let me watch a video. But yeah, when that's taken away and our agency even to get knowledge is taken away, I think that's a huge panic moment. So I think we have been zombified in some ways and that, yes, if we're talking about becoming too reliant. Do I think that all technology or whatever has made us like mindless 
hordes of moving people. No personal opinion. I don't think that. I like to be a little more. Yeah. In fact, the fact you know just that you can go online and learn how Mm -hmm. to fix anything and do anything now. That's huge. I mean, we have access to brains like we never have had before, right? (laughs) Yeah, I like that. Think about the internet, which can be a trash place, as a network of brains that you could just get to connect with all different kinds of people and knowledges. So you can make your own little survival stock as best as possible. So we're actually in a really good position Mm -hmm. to learn all sorts of stuff that could help us survive Mm -hmm. if things got really bad. It's just all of that is going to go away. Exactly. If things get really bad. So, like, we have to do it before. I have a notebook, actually, also in my zombie. I'm thinking of all these things that are just popping up. Um, in my zombie survival kit and a notebook and pen and pencil. Because if it gets wet, the pen will run. So it should be in pencil. Mm. My science grade teacher in, like, seventh grade taught me that. So thanks, <laughs> Mrs. Magish. Um, but, no, writing down things. Like, when I take a survival course, if I'm like, oh, this is exactly how you would stitch up a wound. I will write it down. So even if I can't retain it in my brain currently, at least I will have a non-electronic way of referring to it. Yeah. So I wonder if the whole, like, coming back full circle Mm -hmm. now to the horror thing, right? Mm -hmm. And, like, horror as this way of imagining yourself Mm -hmm. in these situations. Um, Maybe it's a way of, like, motivating us to actually take advantage of what we, you know, all the opportunities we have now Mm -hmm. to be prepared. Yeah. So that we're not screwed when exactly, bad stuff really and I mean, happens. like the CDC famously put out their zombie survival, you know, recommendations or whatever would happen. I think they're doing the same thing. A lot of horror fans are kind of at least talking about of you know, well, what is your zombie survival strategy, or you know, who's on your zombie survival team? You know, even serial killer movies and slashers, right? What do you not do? Don't separate. Don't go in the basement. Like there are rules, right? That horror movies teach us for survival, but they're also escapists. I mean, I'm not trying to say that, you know, go watch Hannibal Lecter or whatever, and you're going to learn the secrets to the universe. But I think that it's a dual thing. So it's escape, but it's also practical knowledge. Did you listen to that podcast, Dirty John? Yes. So yes. Spoiler alert! But did you did you listen to it? Okay. Yeah, I don't know. You might want to cover your ears and go la 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 while we talk about this. I'd rather hear it now. The Walking Dead collapsed. saved her life, basically. Really? Yes. Okay. Which is insane. And that's not even, that's like low level spoiler. But yeah, The Walking huh. Dead saves someone's life. Yeah. Huh. I'll check mm-hmm. it out. So, so yeah. yeah, it's a great example of real world, how thinking about how you would kill someone attacking you actually worked yeah. in her favor. Has anybody mm-hmm. actually done research on this? Like, I don't know. I haven't read it. I've be curious to know if it's out there and if it isn't it should be yeah on which aspect on like the extent to which people you know reading about or seeing movies or just imagining future Mm -hmm. or you know uh, situations where they might be under threat Mm -hmm. and what they would do that if that actually contributes to them having better outcomes yeah there's got to be a way to test that without actually pointing a gun at someone right there's got to be some scientific method to figure it out yeah we should do that. You could look at, oh, I'm trying to think, could you look at like police officers that are somebody who's oh, already in a life and death situation? That's a really good point. Yeah. Look at how many. Transferable skills. Yeah. yeah. How many horror so, movies do you watch? How many zombie movies do you watch? And does that correlate? Yeah. yeah to something. So, something like that. So, um, and soldiers, you know. Yeah, like absolutely. So, um, it's an interesting, yeah. interesting thought. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. so. so tell us a little bit more about you know, this whole side of monsters that's, like, about us kind of challenging Mm -hmm. ourselves or, like, thinking differently. Mm -hmm. I know it's something that you've thought about a lot in your work. No, so I think monsters tend to exist in this liminal space where they're, even if they're not humanoid, they might have human characteristics or they have, you know, predator characteristics. So we have representations of our fears that tend to be very real in terms of, yeah, serial killer with a knife at your throat. Or if it's a dragon with giant talons. I mean, there are animals in the real world that have these traits that could kill us. So you have this sort of real world aspect to them. And then you have the fictional where, you know, that dragon can fly through the air and shoot fire out of its mouth or whatever. And that's not based in reality necessarily, but it does represent our fears and our desires. So I think monsters show us who we are as humans. And by that, I mean what we're afraid of also tells us what we desire and what traits we think 
are good or bad. So I like to say a monster is any being, keeping it vague, any being that deviates from the quote unquote norm in terms of appearance or behavior, and then has some kind of mythology surrounding it. Mm. So yes, you could argue that certain humans fit the monster um, definition, at least for me, but I think ultimately monsters show us human history because none of this happens in a vacuum, right? That there's even Mary Shelley's famous example, one that pops in my head, right? Frankenstein, looking at that as a way to think about the enlightenment, post-enlightenment, the French revolution, about new sciences and technologies coming, about even women being educated and the role of education in the world becoming actually something of value. So that's one example of something can, I think all monsters can, do. Can you say a little more about yeah. that Frankenstein example? Mm -hmm. Like how is it of that time? Like yeah. what is it that, you know, that you yeah. see in there that is reflecting this larger mm -hmm. sort of zeitgeist, I guess. Oh, absolutely. So I think like all a good text is my own personal like philosophy on literature and life in general is that you have the author. So you have their background and their experiences. And even if they're not even intentionally trying to put certain meaning into text, you have their experience. So Mary Shelley, for example, her mother was Mary Wollstonecraft, who was a famous proto-feminist um, writer. And she was actually a recognized writer at the time. And she dies in childbirth, um, giving birth to Mary. So, and then her father, William Godwin, would actually take her to her mother's grave on a regular basis. There's even some evidence they at least kissed Mary and her lover, Percy Shelley, who became her husband eventually, um, had at least their first kiss on her mother's grave. Wow. Um, potentially did more than other firsts on her mother's grave. What? Yeah. <laughs> so she literally was so involved with death, but also the idea of losing a mother and losing a parent. So a lot of um, literary scholars have approached the original Frankenstein text in some ways of like Frankenstein being sort of the mother figure or Frankenstein's creature is lacking a mother figure and how that influences their lives. So that's an example of how like Mary Shelley's personal experience. Then you have actual geography and location. So Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein after the dare of 1816, um, which was basically because of the year without a summer. So 1816, there was this giant um, volcanic explosion that was literally so big that it create it changed the atmosphere. Um, so like the ash cloud and everything meant that there wasn't as much sun and that there wasn't as and it rained a lot, right? So it was the environment like trying to rain it out. A mini apocalypse. Pretty much in some ways. I mean, yeah. she was like in Villa de so it was like vacation. It's like, oh no, we're trapped inside. And that turned into, you know, it was, it was, it was a vacation apocalypse. It was a vacation apocalypse. Right? Like, so like trapped that. inside yeah. and you're on yeah. vacation. And that, because she was inside and she, along with like Percy and Byron and some other people in this home on this vacation, were bored essentially. So they, dared each other to come up with the scariest story imaginable. And that's where she got the first idea for Frankenstein. But part of it is reliant on the concept of galvanism, which was a science that was around that period that they believed basically that you could shock with an electric um, current, shock a dead body and bring it back to life, which we know now when they were seeing things where, you know, residual muscle twitches, but they were like, oh my gosh, you know, the frog's been reanimated and they would actually do this practice um, to, in the front of the public sometimes, and even things like dissection, like human anatomy was arising during the beginning of the 19th century as well. And it was actually like the cooler thing to do is like go to a public lecture where they would dissect a body and talk about it. Wow. So yeah, and then literal uprising of bodies, French Revolution, American Revolution. So England was in this weird phase where they were involved, but it wasn't necessarily happening on their soil. So Frankenstein's creature, I think, represents all of these things. So Mary Shelley's world, but also British national identity, the idea of different sciences coming into play. So why was that scary to people at the time? Like, because it seems yeah. like it could have been exciting. Mm -hmm. right? I think it was a little bit of both um, okay. for people, which I think all good horror does do that. It should be scary, but also exciting. Um, so in terms of, do you mean Frankenstein being scary? Like the yeah. text? A couple, I mean, it does have like gothic spooky elements, right? With thunderstorms and darkness and, you know, people are murdered in somewhat horrific ways. And, um, but I think people really didn't find it maybe as scary, but as exciting. Yeah. Sure. Dealing with the gothic is a little bit different, but I think people were though afraid that the possibility of the way science was going and even the way intellectual thought was going, right? New ideas is galvanizing a nation, you know, bringing them to sort of different kind of awareness. And the creature represents that thing. And then Frankenstein represents 
not just the mad scientist, but, you know, what happens when maybe morality is taken out of some of the decisions that you're making in the world. It doesn't just affect one person. You know, you don't just get a creature. You get how that creature then interacts. And spoiler alert, a couple hundred years later, right? The creature does end up killing um, quite a few people and people important to Frankenstein. So I think that's indicative in some ways of like, okay, maybe you kill one person. What's the domino effect of that? And that, I think, was definitely on the minds of everyone after hundreds of thousands of people were dying at the time. So how does the idea of the monster mm -hmm. or a monster in general relate to agency and intentionality and, mm -hmm. you know, those kinds of concepts? Is there a yeah. clear relationship? I don't think I can say that there is based because I think every monster is different. I think even every version of like a zombie is different. I think there's like five different kinds of zombies. Oh, um, would you at least five. Okay, okay yeah. tell us. Tell us the five. Yeah, I hope okay. to do an episode about this um, next season on Monstrum for a series. So I think you have the Haitian zombie, so the voodoo zombie. Then you have the Romero zombie, which is the first time an undead corpse was associated with both eating flesh and being able to be killed by removing the head or destroying the brain. Then you have what I call the rage zombie, and that's the 2002, named after the 28 days later, where it's they're not necessarily dead, um, or it's more a biological cause, but and they move fast, right? Romero zombies are slow, rage zombies are fast. Then you have the metaphorical zombie, which I know is kind of a cop-out, because in some ways they're all metaphors, but there are some um, horror texts where it's just like, I came back to haunt you, but not as a ghost, like an actual physical corpse. And then you have, I call the hive zombie, which is where they're usually fast. And there's not just a couple hundred or a couple thousand, but little, literally millions of zombies. So World War Z is a good example of that. The terrifying scene. And they move often like a hive. They yeah, have do they have some shared. sort of collective intentionality? Some versions they do. Some they don't. Um, yeah, some people do believe in different horror stories that zombies can communicate in various ways. No, the metaphorical zombie. Because, like, mm -hmm. yeah, like you were saying. It's, it's like the catch-all. Yeah. Aren't the other are the are the other four types metaphors for different things? Yes, generally? absolutely. So maybe a better way for metaphor would be like revenge zombie, where the zombie re animates itself to, for a larger purpose, rather than being bitten or you know an asteroid or some kind of biological. Is that, would that germ. be like the mummy? Would that sort of be similar? Yeah, so I okay. love mom. I love anything undead. So I try to group all of that. I know, which is so fun to say. Um, I group all of that into the undead, which is a reanimated human corpse. Um, so mummy's definitely fulfilling. Yeah, you could argue that the mummy is a revenge zombie. Okay. You could, yeah. Whereas the Romero zombie, it also, it, it, does it reanimate itself? Or is it re reanimated through a we spell? We actually don't, I'm pretty sure Romero's vague about okay. why, but um, Haitian zombies, yes, are directly related to a Bokor, um, which is a voodoo priest who practices dark magic. So there is some spell stuff there, but also the literal poison, the zombie poison. Um, there's been a lot of studies done about that. And I do want to say, I mean, people still in Haiti, zombies are real to them. Like in the way they define zombies, zombies are 100% something that can happen. There are even people who have come out and been interviewed and said, I am a zombie, like I was dead. And then I was exhumed and now I'm walking around again. And they usually just don't have like their soul. Right. It gets super complicated what? because, <laughs> yeah. So at death, like when you send a death certificate in Haiti, you essentially, that I mean, you have a birth certificate and the death certificate negates the birth certificate, obviously. Right. But then people who are coming back saying I'm alive again, they actually don't have like a national identity and they're not even recognized as part of. Because they can't be, because you can't give a rebirth certificate. Wow. It's fascinating, yeah. And I don't, unfortunately, know enough about Haitian voodoo zombies, or at least how they conceptualize zombies I would like to. Um, but yeah, I think it's important to recognize that a zombie is not just, you know, a reanimated fictional thing that goes around eating people's brains. Like, zombies are so much broader than that. Yeah. Well, just hearing you talk about the, like, weird legal space, it's mm -hmm. like... Talk about a liminal existence. Like yeah. you're like alive, but you're technically yes. legally dead. And yeah. I think a lot of undead stuff does that where other, you know, other types of monsters maybe can't because the undead, you know, were once human. So what happens when the human body is walking around again? This brings up questions of life, right? So are they alive? Do they have souls? What constitute a soul? What constitute consciousness? I mean, just because their brains are telling them to go around ripping maybe the flesh off other people's faces the brain is still working, right? So are they 
alive? Are they not? So, so I should say reanimated. Yeah. yeah. What are like the the monsters in us? Have you seen us? Oh yes, doppelgangers. Right. So, mm-hmm. so a doppelganger is a really old concept that exists in lots of different um, cultures and communities. That there's literally one other person that looks exactly like you. That's that. It's kind of a expansion of the evil twin concept that you have another person walking around who usually is worse than you in some ways or maybe better than you um and i don't know enough about doppelganger history but i think us also represents a larger trend i've identified in at least um horror movies that we're going back to this whole evil pagan cult situation or like cults and paganism again i think are being themes um hereditary is an example I don't want to give away too many because even Get Out's an example, right, of a sort of a cult-like mentality. So the idea of a religion or one idea being infectious and being the big bad that turns people evil. So, so why do you think that that's catching on these days? Ooh, it's complicated. Um, a couple reasons. I think because ideas about religion are changing in general. And I think more and more people are moving away from maybe having the strict beliefs that certain, you know, religions do preach to and also i think we're seeing an uptick in people who do believe in um pagan or wiccan or other non-monotheistic um traditions and i think that's happening but also i think the world is kind of in a shit place right now in terms of (laughs) not just literally but i think there's kind of going back to the idea of the mind connection with the internet there's so many ideas and in some ways that's really really awesome like we were talking about not just survival but exposure and community and all those things but at the same time that also means that that one person can become like a germ or like a virus and sort of infect other people's minds um and we're we can do that because of communication and technology whereas you know hundreds of years ago you wrote a letter if if the letter got to where it was supposed to be going which got lost all the time, or if like a ship crashed, then there goes all the mail there. I mean, it would take months, if not years, to communicate to different parts of the globe. And I think that's something to think about now. Um, but to, yeah, to go I back see. to the pagan so thing. Yeah. Right, so it's like now it's people, because in like Get Out, mm-hmm. it's like people controlling other people sort of against their will, right? Yeah. That sort of mind And I think a lot things. of the like beast type monsters, so dragons, kraken, um chimeras anything no more animal based personally at least from what i've experienced and researched with the ones i do know about a lot of that has to go to an animal or a behavior or like a fossil that we don't understand whereas now i think science for good or for bad has taken out a lot of the mystery in some of those things so we i think are forced to turn to each other as being the monsters we see more human monsters so you could argue that's even one of the reasons we've seen an uptick in zombie movies or undead stuff um you know of us being the true monsters as humans also um yeah cult stuff pagan stuff serial killer stuff i mean serial killer industry is having a huge boom right now of really? people being yes I mean, the mind serial hunter killer industry. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm just going to that. I'm sure. <laughs> um, but yeah, the idea of selling different TV shows or movies or books be- about real life serial killers or fictional serial killers, we've seen a lot of. And again, there's been interest in all of these things throughout the majority of human history. But I think yeah, access and accessibility. Well, it's the same thing. It seems yeah. like it's sort of like there's like sort of trends, right? And mm-hmm. sometimes like vampires were really mm-hmm. big zombies i feel like yep. were really big and now i mm-hmm. feel like this sort of mind control thing yeah like, and then also there's like the the ring girl and like versions of her were yes. really big for a while the what the girl from the ring okay. like the i little... would say like the ghosts had a big moment and like poltergeist kind yeah. of a thing where the ghost being able to somehow touch you or interact with your world and I, I know I'm probably going to get a lot of shit for this, but I think ghosts aren't as exciting as the undead. I think there's something so powerful about the idea that it's not the person's, like, spirit that's coming back. or like, And usually they're vengeful if a ghost is coming back. But literally the body that you potentially were talking to two days ago is now coming at you, maybe trying to eat you. I think the corporeality of the undead is really significant. Mm-hmm. So... Is there anything like more about this, like sort of monsters in particular points in time and Mm -hmm. like what's happening now that 
you want to share with us? Just I think the idea that we need to recognize monsters as having meaning, that they do pop up at certain times or in certain areas or with certain people, not just because someone published a book that was really successful. You have to think about why that book was successful or why that movie is so talked about and really examine ourselves, I guess, as the beings who both create and consume the monsters. So what do we want right now? What do we fear right now? And I can't really think of any other like big monster trends at the moment. People always ask like, what do you think, you know, it's going to be like five years from now? And I don't know yet because I don't think I know enough about where the world's going to be. Yeah. And again, this is, I mean, what's a monster for United States of America is completely different potentially from a monster in Mexico or in South Korea versus North Korea even. Their monsters are going to look different because those are different experiences in different communities. So people are sort of coming with different cultural backgrounds. Yes, and then also 100%. they're present, like the political, mm-hmm. economic, social yeah. environment that they're in yes. is different. So Yeah, and that's one thing I really try to do with my research is show that even the idea of like El Chupacabras has a history. What, what's that? El Chupacabras. I'm doing an episode about it. Um, really <laughs> excited. So depending, it originated in Puerto Rico. Um, but basically that version is a, it means goat sucker. So there was a trend of livestock suddenly dying like by the hundreds and no one knew it was causing it. And they did usually have two puncture wounds in their neck. Um, so a lot of other things are going on. So I have to watch the episode to find out about that. Um, but that traveled and actually people, I know students personally who have been like, oh yeah, we've seen a chupacabras or my family believes in them a hundred percent because you have cultural tradition, but also oral tradition and history. So that also comes sort of against what's going on in the present right now. So, I mean, you see it, if anyone finds like a dog with mange, like in the desert, it's like, have you found the chupacabras? Like, is this it? So it's become this sort of mythological, almost folk hero in a way for some people. So it's like, it's humanoid, right? It's this. It depends on the version. So not really. No? More animalistic um, than humanoid for sure. Although sometimes they have intelligence. Oh, is it, is it, does it run on two legs or does it? So there's, it's so frustrating. There's basically two different versions. So there's a two-legged one that usually has big eyes, kind of looks more like a gray man alien in terms of like head shape. Might have wings, might have a really long tongue. Um, Definitely has to have fangs though, might have claws. So that one's usually two-legged. And then there's the four-legged, which more looks like, yeah, like a sick coyote or a dog where it's four-legged. Um, It just looks kind of scary, which I think is fascinating, right? That there's a monster just because maybe a dog or a coyote or a raccoon or something literally has a disease and looks abnormal that we make it a monster automatically just because we don't know how to confront the thing that's outside of our norm. Hmm. So is there oftentimes like a relationship between disease and monstrosity? Yeah, I think that there definitely tends to be. Um, Absolutely. Even going back to looking at things like... um, carnivals right where they had you know like the elephant man which has a disease um so absolutely twins were considered evil in many different cultures for a very long period of time um conjoined twins even people um, with dwarfism yeah it goes back to my definition of a monster right anytime you have someone who even appears abnormal and then make usually a negative story around that person or that group of people, you get a monster. So then that kind of actually starts linking in with this broader conversation that's happening now about ability and like thinking and talking differently Mm -hmm. about people with, Mm -hmm. you know, who have different abilities and giving them the chance to name themselves. And exactly. Yeah. Cause that's what also comes down to as a monster is very few people are going around saying, yes, I am a monster in a lot of horror texts. We don't see that as much. It's usually someone else usually a human, pointing a finger at that person or that thing and saying it's a monster or it's monstrous. Hmm. And it's almost like once you do that, once you say, hey, that's a monster, Mm -hmm. then that idea kind of becomes viral, right? It has a life of its own Mm -hmm. in the minds of people, right? Absolutely. Another way to think about it too is how historically and culturally and even language, how things change, right? So I just did an episode about the Dragor, which is essentially the Icelandic undead monster and in some cases they're i mean they're always reanimated corpses sometimes they do eat people or eat flesh or drink blood so what's the difference between that and a zombie and a vampire it's just the name in a lot of ways and the location where it comes from Hmm. yeah did that uh did that become like trying to think did did those all sort of spring up on their own 
or was it like a tradition that sort of moved from society to society? I think it depends. I do. I'm still doing my research on that. And ultimately, I would love to, you know, do an edited collection of different scholars from across the world talking about their culture's undead thing. Um, but I've found the majority of places um, have some kind of undead monster. And usually when one is absent, it's because their religious practices mean like um, cremation. So if the body's gone, right, you can't have a reanimated body without the body. But for people who, yeah, maybe bury their dead or preserve their dead in some way, there's always an undead creature. At least that I found so far. So hmm. we'll have to see. Yeah. So you said a lot of people ask you about where it's going. Yes. In terms, but uh, yeah. in terms of right now, mm -hmm. what do you think is the scariest type of monster? The scariest type of monster what, right now? What taps into sort of modern fears? I think it's really not, and this I feel this way about all monster movies in general, usually the monster is the scapegoat or the red herring for the true monster, which usually is how humans react to the monster and how they treat each other. Um, so I think actually the idea of the cult or of mind control is big right now because we're all so afraid of not being in control of ourselves and our own ideas. That's what I think right now we're seeing a lot of. Mm -hmm. So sort of this podcast. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking about it, we haven't really had a lot of, I mean, Ex Machina is a good robot one, that horror movie. Yeah. But we haven't seen that many robot or like bad AI, which yeah. is kind of surprising. I'm terrified of robots. I'm terrified. <laughs> I'm absolutely terrified. But yeah, since like the Terminator, which was like the yeah. 80s. And, and the, then... or the ones that I can think of aren't as popular. So you have Terminator, you have iRobot. You have Ex Machina. There are, been, I'm trying to think of, I'm sure there's a couple that came out in the last like year or two that I haven't seen, but. I haven't seen not Westworld, but it's almost oh, like. Oh, Westworld. That's like yeah. the human side. I mean, I, I mm -hmm. know just a little bit about it, but right, it's, it's yeah. the like humans are, are the monsters yeah, exactly. for creating this world mm -hmm. or the supposed monster. So it's yes. like the. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's a good one because it's if you watch the I only watched the first season, but the, yeah. the last episode of the first season is yeah. sort of okay. I'll, I'll, I will watch it. A little, it. Yeah. So and then um, we can talk. About and it's it. kind of like Ex Machina, where basically there becomes an issue where what's a robot and what's a human, not just like by definition, but physically. Like, would I be able to tell the difference between the two of you if one of you is a robot or not? And I think. Part of my fear with technology is that we're not going to be able to. Well, scares me. but you know what? Like to the extent that we're all already yes. living in a digital mm -hmm. world, like, I mean, it's super oh, yeah. easy to set up a program that can pass the Turing test, yes. which is, you know, like seeming like a human. So there's already so many, you know, software robots yeah. online that. Oh, and some people even argue that we are all, if you have a smartphone, you are an Android because it's become so such a piece of technology we rely yeah. on that we carry with us almost always. Yeah. yeah. Well, my neighbor just brought up how, like, after you die, your digital identity sticks mm -hmm. around yeah. forever. And he said that apparently by something like 2050, there'll be more people online who are dead than alive. That's terrifying. But I mean, then that's so, just makes me think of Black huh. Mirror. I mean, Black yeah. Mirror is a great example yeah. of modern day horror, right? Of how yep. the technologies that we currently have can have all kinds of different monstrous well, I don't know why I just said it like that monstrous <laughs> horrific yeah. elements yeah yeah totally and I, I I love that show it's like one of yeah. the few things that I actually really mm -hmm. watch semi-religiously um but a bunch of the episodes aren't even about like any fictional technology mm -hmm. they're just about exactly. the technology that yeah. actually already exists and then kind of like taking it to its you know, monstrous conclusion yeah. if you let it yep. go. So No, I agree. So yeah, I think it's probably technology being monsters right now. And then again, cults or some kind of mass group of people. Because again, it's not a lot of cults might be, you know, based on following a religion or one person, but it's still a person. It's not most of the time, like, you know, you're worshiping a ghost or a vampire or whatever. It's another human. So I think human based monsters are really what do, you, right what do you think is sort of behind there's like like the past like two or three years since like stranger mm -hmm. things there's like a yeah. retro monster sort yeah. of thing what do you think what's the deal with that i guess i think part like, of it is nostalgic i really do believe that i mean i'm trying to think even i'm so excited for like the new godzilla movie like the idea that kaijus are coming back like that's 
awesome to me. I love that. <laughs> um, and I think part of it is boredom also. I mean, it's there's only so many times you can see like terrible humans on screen doing terrible things to each other. Right, because those those are both kind of fun. Like both yeah. Stranger Things and Godzilla. Yes. Like, I don't think of Godzilla it's the fantasy as element. scary. And I think that goes back to where a lot of horror um, originates from in some ways. Like I was saying, right, that there's like sort of two sides to every monster. There's the fictional side and then the nonfiction part. And I think with we like to think oh, about the fiction and make it a little less scary because, you know, the upside down, God willing, does not actually exist. And the things coming out of it, you know, the demigorgons aren't actually real, but we still have, again, animals on this planet besides humans that could kill us. Like people get killed by tigers and bears all the time. Yeah. I wonder if there's almost something that happens when you have that piece that is clearly fiction where you're like okay i'm gonna suspend my disbelief yes and then yes. maybe that allows you to go places in your mind 100%. you can't otherwise go i absolutely believe that and i think yeah. again stranger things like all good horror text talks about so many different things besides just monsters right about the idea of government experimentation government control how familial relationships play out on that show and i think those things are easier for us to digest as an audience if they're under the guise of monster or under the guise of fiction. Right. They have really big friendship themes. Like they, yeah. they show like people working together, which mm -hmm. you don't see in like Ex yeah. Machina at all. Yeah. Right? No. Oh. And so. Yeah. Yeah. And Ex Machina is much harder to watch. Like. Yeah. Me, I think. I, you know? Yeah. And I think because Ex Machina, at least for me, brings up issues about is she real? Like, and then what is real? Like, what's real? Like, how do I constitute a person? Those sort of existential questions, even for me, get a little tiring to think about too much. Right. <laughs> so the idea of Stranger Things or even the White Walkers or dragons in Game of Thrones, right? The It's fantasy. So there's that suspension that allows you to also disassociate emotionally. So you're scared in a safe way. Yeah. Yeah. Uh -oh. I have a question about... Um... You sort of brought up this thing about like, you know, cults and worshiping mm -hmm. and like we talked about technology some mm -hmm. before, like in the sort of history mm -hmm. of monsters, like what is this sort of role of like technology? Is it is like there a danger in sort of worshiping technology or mm. seeing it like it's as this thing yeah. that itself is like the giver of life and yeah. I, so I, I'm yeah. just wondering if like there's a sort of angle there because it seems like we're also now at a time where there's almost this like worship of technology yeah. in a way, right? Mm -hmm. Like, No, I think anytime you have a change in a largely systemic belief, you're going to have confrontation for that. You're going to have fear of that. I mean, we fear the unknown, right? So if someone all of a sudden is even telling you, holy shit, the earth is round that's going to scare people because it goes outside of what they've been taught and what they think is normal. But Emily, you don't have to fear the unknown. <laughs> yeah. if, you can, if you can just ask Google. Yeah, right? Yeah. So yeah, let's do it. Ask, ask Google And then of course questions. I have questions of like, who then is programming Google to bring up certain things and certain phrases or words into which people and what audiences and that again, robots coding tech freak me out. And I do think that that in both Ex Machina and Westworld, mm -hmm. that's a big thing is this idea of they present it as people thinking about, oh, what can this, what can this technology do for us? Mm -hmm. And then a lot of times when the twist comes, it's like, oh, maybe the technology isn't really thinking about us. Yeah, you it's know? not for oh, us even. So, yeah. Oh. So I do think that that sort of that idea of the worship, like I, I think that is becoming a fear of where and so like many getting monsters so start that way, this. where it's one thing sort of losing control or becoming more powerful than initially they thought and. Yeah, that's where the fear comes from. We want to be able to control things. So when we can't, I think we're afraid of them. Mm. So it's almost like when the monsters sort of develop their own autonomy. Yeah. Fido yeah. is a really good example of a zombie movie that does that. So in Fido, which is hilarious, it's like a zombie comedy. Zomcom. Um, Zomcom. <laughs> the Zomcom, they have zombies and no one is scared of them because they develop these collars that basically allow them to become slaves or servants. Slaves being the more appropriate term for the situation mm -hmm. that they're in, to be honest. Um, and then it, well, people only panic when the collar, like, if it gets taken off, right? So the idea, they're not even scared of them anymore, even though they could eat them because they assume that they're under their control and that they won't. Huh. Mm. That sounds pretty it's good. Fun. I've never and heard there's a zombie story. human romance. It's actually very endearing and not as creepy as you would expect, so... It sounds very creepy, but I'll take your yeah. word for it. So. <laughs> it's also set in like the 50s. So it's very, you know, like Stepford Wives, but with zombies. 
that does sound like a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so we always talk about sort of your version of the zombie apocalypse Um, of like whatever kind of zombification we've been talking mm -hmm. about. We've kind of been having a sort of free ranging conversation. We did Mm -hmm. like at the beginning, talk a little bit about almost like being zombified by feeling like you you know, can't actually do stuff, mm-hmm. right? So we talked about that, and mm-hmm. we've talked about monsters a lot, and maybe even, like, the idea that monsters and, can, like, the idea of monsters can fear. zombify you. Yeah, the idea of fear, yeah. like, the way fear sort of... We haven't really talked about how fear controls us, mm-hmm. but, I mean, that's a thing. Yeah. yeah. Theoretically. Yeah. But, so you can take the zombie apocalypse okay. in whatever direction she you direction want to take want. it. Yeah. So what is... But what's your version? Like, if we take these kinds of ideas mm-hmm. and we just, like, amplify them, mm-hmm. like, what kind of zombie apocalypse are we in? Are we currently in? Oh or, no, what, 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 no, what, no, no, what would, what would we be in? Like, we're, we're, like, you know, imagining now that... The stuff that we've been talking uh-huh. about is just like way more intense yeah. than what it is. So, what is that? Person apocalypse. I, I were to say the most likely thing that would happen for a zombie apocalypse, and what by I define zombie apocalypse as people who cannot, that are down to their base brain function, and that turn against other humans. Uh, I think that would and reanimated corpses, undead. I do think yes. all true zombies <laughs> are undead. Um, I think it's going to be biological. And that's either going to be a bioweapon that we can't control or a bioweapon released on purpose. But I do think for a real zombification would require a chemical changing in the brain or a physical changing in the structure of the brain. Um, and there's stuff that does that already, like those ants that can get infected with the zombie parasite and it completely changes oh, their behavior. yeah, the cordyceps fungus. So I think yep. it's more likely that something like that will either, with human intervention, jump to humans or even just evolution something nuts happens because i don't think we could truly ever understand nature in all of her glory so i think there's still maybe our microbiomes have already completely zombified us and the only reason that we're sitting here like doing a podcast about zombification is because our microbes want us to yes uh, (laughs) i don't know yeah maybe so i have so i have another sort of Mm -hmm. apocalypse variation like because we talked about how we're we're consuming this media to mm-hmm. sort of prepare us, right? So is there a, an apocalypse version where we're either intentionally misprepared by this media mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. we consume the wrong type that then causes us to be completely unable to... So that makes me think of like robot apocalypse, right? That we think these things are here to help us, then one day they're going to get sentience or all come together as their own population. And if every person has a robot in their home that everyone could potentially be killed by a robot in their home. Yeah. What I was picturing is actually probably not classically a horror movie. It mm-hmm. was Wally. Um, yes, Wally is a great mm-hmm. example. Yeah. Of like a, that is technically an apocalypse. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Like, um, yeah. So the cruise ship version. Yeah. Where yeah. It's like everything is programmed for you and you just push a little button and it takes you from one place to another. And in some way, I think that's an extension of other dystopian stuff that we've seen before with like 1984 and Brave New World and Fahrenheit 451, right? That we're going to have things are going to become almost too easy. So maybe that's what it is. Maybe horror maintains like the human struggle just enough for us to avoid going full apocalypse. Hmm. Well, yeah. So when the apocalypse is like, it's an apocalypse of giving up your autonomy, mm-hmm. right? Then what you have to do is like push against it to like, you know, find like where is the real world yeah. actually, right? And what's interesting and now that I'm thinking about it is a lot of the time it's art that comes into play as the savior, right? Even in Wally, he has like emotions because he watches like the musicals yeah. and stuff. And 1984 is all about taking away all of that. So if maybe that's what's gonna save humanities will save us, not science. <laughs> you heard it here. <laughs> well, all right, well, good because right, that's yeah. our final thing, right? Is how we survive the apocalypse. Yeah, so, so uh, we need horror on so many levels, I guess, mm-hmm. to survive, to prepare for the mm-hmm. apocalypse, to make sure that we don't get stuck in an apocalypse of our own creation where we've given up our autonomy. That's the brilliant thing about all fiction, and you can interpret that in terms of movies and music and art or whatever. It's being able to express our imaginations and try out new ideas again without physically having to do them maybe ourselves um you know showing a painting of someone looking over the precipice of a 
tumultuous ocean, right? I don't necessarily want to be doing that because I'm afraid I'm going to fall in. But if I can be, view a beautiful painting or the artist gets to express that, then I think we have a cathartic element that allows our imaginations to sort of fly wherever they want. Right. We can become disembodied that way. Yes. Yeah. Disembodied <laughs> humanity. <laughs> so what is our one, the one thing listeners should do to prepare for the apocalypse? So, so number one thing, yeah. buy duct tape and keep it with you. Okay. And also be able to shoot a gun. Oh, oh all right. really? So, uh, I think that's like opinion. Arizona advice too, right? Yeah, I think that's United States of America advice. United States of America uh, advice. Places where I think there are other people could have guns, uh-huh. you should be able to use one if you need to. All right. So all right. But assume, duct tape. Duct tape before guns. I assume ammo will also be very <laughs> you should. Yes. <laughs> you, you should make a shirt that says duct, duct tape, tape before, before guns. guns. Yes. yes. <laughs> I love that idea. Well, no, duct tape can do yeah. Duct tape is everything. You can fix your shoes. You can actually run away. I've once fixed a shoe with duct tape. Yeah. 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 You can use it for wounds. You yeah. could even, if you really wanted, use a rock and duct tape and like a heavy stick and make a weapon. You can do a lot of things with duct tape. All right. There we go. So, so duct right. tape. Duct, duct tape. tape before guns. All right. Duct tape before guns. I should get that sponsored by whatever like, the duct tape company is. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> <Me>. <laughs> Well, Emily, thank you so much. Thank for you so much for having me. This has been lovely. Your awesome brain oh, with all of us. Yeah. Yes, yeah. the brain infection. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, all right. Thank you so all much. Right. And if the whole world says that we're you to the Department of Psychology and to ASU in general for supporting this podcast, especially the Interdisciplinary Cooperation Initiative, the Lincoln Center for Applied Ethics, and all of the students and staff who help support this um, in my lab and beyond my lab. Thanks to the Zombie Apocalypse Medicine Alliance too. If you're looking for us on Twitter Instagram and Facebook. We are Zombified Pod. On Patreon, we are Zombified and our website is zombified.org. Please think about supporting us. We are an educational podcast. We have no ads and we really uh, are very grateful for any support that you could give. Even just $1 a month will make a, a big difference for us. Thanks to all the brains that help make this podcast, to Tal Ram, who does our sound, to Neil Smith, who does all of our awesome illustrations, and to Lemmy, the artist behind our song, Psychological. So at the end of every episode, I share some of my brains offering something from my life, maybe a story or some connection to my work or uh, a wild speculation or, or just some thoughts. And so today I wanted to talk a little bit about horror and how awesome I think the ideas of horror for engaging with real threats. So this is, you know, kind of what Emily talks about is how horror can allow us to engage with things that might be really, really scary, um, things that might be really threatening, but in a context that isn't threatening and that allows us to kind of imagine our way through things, kind of simulate them in our heads in a way that allows us to potentially be better prepared 
if a really bad event does happen. And so I think there's a really cool angle here of the potential of our collective imagination. So you're not just imagining as an individual, but imagining together, like if we think about what might happen in a zombie apocalypse and we do that together and we talk about it, that that can potentially be a way for us to be more prepared for disasters in general. So like, for example, the conversation that Dave and I had with Emily, it made both me and Dave think a little bit about how we actually don't have the things that we need to just be prepared for a disaster and a kind of disaster that could potentially happen. Um, uh, you know, uh, we live in Tempe and actually there, it's not that uncommon that there's floods here. I know that sounds weird because everybody thinks it's just hot here all the time, but we have, uh, monsoons in the spring and in the fall and, there can be serious floods and people die every year because they're not ready for them. And yeah, I don't even have enough sandbags now to barricade my house if I needed to do that. And um, a couple of years ago when we were here, we needed to do that. So I think there's an opportunity for just really leveraging that collective imagination. So imagining you know, a worst case scenario and what would you do and how would you handle it and... I think that's a really powerful way for us to start thinking about, you know, are we prepared and kind of make that fun instead of just like feeling bad because you're not doing it or you haven't done it yet. So that makes me think I should maybe go ahead and bite the bullet and just put together my go pack and then I'll have it um, and maybe get some more sandbags. So (laughs) thank you for listening to Zombified, your source for fresh brains. It's crazy, but it seems so logical. I can't deny that there is something supernatural.